Hey, hey, and welcome to Minter Dialogue, episode number 499. My name is Minter Dial, and I'm your host for this podcast, a proud member of the Evergreen Podcast Network. For more information or check out other wonderful shows on the network, please visit evergreenpodcast.com. This week's interview is with my friend Eva Pascoe. Eva's famous for having co-founded the world's first ever internet cafe, Siberia Cafe, back in 1994. With a career deep in e-commerce and retail, she's been a standout pioneer for having worked at Topshop, Dorothy Perkins, Miss Selfridge, and more. She's currently a director of e-commerce at the Retail Practice Consultancy, co-founder and chair of Cybersalon.org Think Tank, as well as having other directorships and advisory board positions. Most recently, Eva wrote one of the chapters of a near-term fiction book, 22 Ideas About the Future, with an introduction from Douglas Rushkoff. We discuss the future of retail, tech and money, as well as dive into her particular story, The Summoned, a fascinating chat. You'll find all the show notes on minterdial.com and please consider to drop in your rating and review and don't forget to subscribe to catch all the future episodes. Now for the show. Eva Pascal. Pasco, Pascal. Great to have you on the show. You'll correct me. You are a multi uh, entrepreneur, maestra of all things digital, retail, contributor, writer. You do work in philanthropy. Uh, such a, a wide and wonderful career and friend, Eva. In your own words, how would you like to describe yourself? Me, I'm a, I'm a techno pioneer and a futurist, but with a lot of respect for the past. So I'm also a closet historian. Yeah, it's funny, this idea of, of whether we should be observing our past to understand the future. Or should we destroy the past to recreate the future? You know, I spend a lot of time thinking about those issues because I think somebody should. And, you know, as uh, humans, we are really not well disposed to ponder on the future any more than the next 10 minutes. You know, we only change when we have to. We only improve when there is a crisis. So biologically, you know, for millions of years, we were really never in position to plan anything further than the next meal. And somehow that stayed with us. You know, I'm endlessly amazed how non-future oriented we are. And how, you know, we haven't really improved for last few hundred years. Our brains might have gone better, but our tools and as a society, we haven't really developed better ways of dealing with, with further future, which is we're always in trouble as a result of it. We're stumbling around like toddlers. So I sort of took it upon myself, you know, a few with few other people to really dedicate myself to trying to think that few steps ahead. So my space is really not you know spaceships i don't do space although i love that but it's not my bug i look at near future but beyond my next meal so that's the kind of space i've been inhabiting for probably last 20 years so i'm the co-founder of the first internet cafe uh, back in the 90s where nobody had email there were no laptops no wi-fi yet academics and i was doing my phd 
loved email and we had amazing friendships online and everybody was always falling in love with somebody over email. So we understood quite early that the digital life would be would be very interesting and very different. And we just wanted to bring it out to people. So we took it out from universities, uh, opened the first cafe, and then we rolled it out worldwide to about other six countries, including Tokyo, which was really interesting, and Thailand, where people would come and serve the net in groups, that it was very much a collective activity. People were sitting you know, five around one computer and there was one des- delegated to actually do the typing. So it was all in, in, immense fun. But it also taught me that people really need a bit of help with this digital life. And particularly because as it was early Bohemian days, it was quite benign. You know, everybody meant well, everybody was academic and shared that very sort of positive, constructive approach to helping people online. Alas, you know, capitalism is what it is. And quite soon, maybe by 97, 98, large companies started piling in and they understood that this is a great place to manipulate people. This is a great place to influence people. This is a great place to make people do things they don't want to be doing. And it really was a battle since then. So we founded this um, think tank cyber salon back in 97, when the first third party cookies uh, appeared and were legalized. And we understood that this is all going to be about surveillance. Uh, So I was always looking at um, protecting digital rights as much as possible, because most people don't really understand what happens to them online. And particularly over the last few years, when uh, artificial intelligence started powering up those online tools and we became the in the middle of the battle of the past and the future because artificial intelligence tracks you and tracks and knows 100% your past and it's constantly trying to throw you in the rail of that future being exact extrapolation from the past which is never a good idea because we should be learning things, doing things better. Yet that immensely beautiful new technology is just making us do the same again and again because it's used the companies to make us to make us force habits that are then easily predictable and easily monetizable. So at the moment we're just fighting. You know, the past is great if you learn from it, but not if you keep repeating it. So that's kind of my take on the past versus future at the moment. Mm, it's funny because. There's certain irony in this idea of having no idea of the future just by meal and and this other trend, if you will, of meditation and being present, where the objective of being present is to forget about your worries, the, the worry mind, uh, don't forget about, don't to get, stops fretting about the future and just being present, which sounds like what we're supposed to do at some level. And, and yet it is also at the um, abstraction from our past, our real past, and and uh, planning for the future. Yes, it's very difficult because obviously some people are naturally uh, looking for crisis management. You know, I've got quite a few friends who are extremely good project managers in the day jobs but very fretty times of work because it's just the mindset. So I think the challenge is to find a a peaceful path between the two. But we do have increasing amount of challenges 
And I think as a generation, we probably have to err on the side of slight anxiety because things are mounting in front of us and we haven't really got the tools to deal with it. And I remember this cartoon in New Yorkers, in New York magazine, where a dinosaur is giving a lecture on the lectern looking terribly important. And I said, gentlemen, the meteor is coming, but we have very small brains. And we are in the same position, you know, the climate change is coming and we're sitting here with very small brains and no tools to deal with it. So that sort of thrown me a little bit into fiction because all my life I was writing nonfiction, uh, you know, essays, raising awareness. I did a whole bunch of digital manifestos to help various political parties to maneuver this near future in terms of uh, fiber optics connectivity, what should we do with digital education. But, you know, you're preaching to the converted, you're preaching to the choir. When you write nonfiction, it's all very well. And, you know, I'm hoping that some of it landed somewhere. But generally, people who pick it up are people who already of that ilk. And we have to reach out a lot further to make things really address the future as it's in front of us. So we started exploring fiction a while ago which was enormous fun. So I've done a few writing courses and sat on a few amazingly fascinating workshops and kind of managed to find a bit of my brain, which was probably there all along, but uh, I never gave myself space to write. So it was really great opportunity when we were approached by uh, Dr. Christina Icardi, who runs uh, AI ethics uh, program in, the King, in King's College to, uh, to put a book together uh, from the program of participatory futures, where you bring art, uh, artists, writers, and experts to address certain parts of uh, society ills and together jointly pick up on what's the problem at the moment, what could be the problem within the next two or three years, because it's kind of near future, and try to write the stories that will visualize it for people so they can feel the emotional impact of all this tech thrown at us. And, you know, we started from trying to be on the utopian, on the positive. Christina is an amazingly positive person. So she said, don't write this topic. We don't want any of that. But, you know, I'm writing and it gets very dark and I'm writing more and it's darker because you can see that we are just so incredibly disempowered. But we try to err on some positive. So the, the book that came out, The 22 Ideas About the Future, it's really a mixtopia as we call it. So yes, plenty of dark because a lot of that around, but we try to find little shards of hope in between. Well, so I, I obviously want to get into that, Eva, but um, just beforehand, there's you, you said uh, this notion of capitalism sort of has this nasty way of breaking down the ideals, the idealism that started at the beginning and this picture of the five people around the computer and the, the people falling in love over emails. So there's sort of like this humanity piece within it. But I, I tend not to blame capitalism, but maybe more humanities need to progress and the ways we progress. And, and inevitably, it, it progresses to this idea of money, which is one of the recurring themes in this new book, 20 Ideas About the Future, which is the future of money. But so capitalism, progress, humanity. Which one is it? Well, you know, to, to step back, maybe, I was brought up in communism, completely different system where money was kind of irrelevant. Nobody earned much. We were all equally poor. We were kind of equal, but very, very much on the lower end of affluence. So, so it was an interesting migration for me when I then 
swapped for capitalism and a system which is entirely about money. So I have a pretty good reflection on that, seeing which one is better, because obviously there were some advantages in communism, for example, for women, much better conclusion, because the if the earnings are irrelevant, women were a lot more equal, childcare was free, you know, there were things to cherish. However, overall, it communists made very poor use of resources and it was very bad for environment It absolutely trashed anywhere it showed up. And I was brought up not too far from Silesia, where you know, 20 years of communism and you couldn't breathe. It was so bad. The 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 approach of eco futures has to be for democracy. Because if people can't vote the rulers out, the the easy choice is to do nothing. So I'm definitely erring on the free marketeer side side as you know, it's it just allocates resources better, but it comes with a lot of problems and we should try to address them. Uh, but you won't find me on the left of the left extreme, you know, fighting for a system that was created in heads of few people around the coffee table. I'm very, very wary of systems created around any coffee table, left or right. I think free market has a lot to be set for in terms of allocating resources correctly and not forcing people to do what they don't want to do. Freedom, freedom thrives in free market. Uh, but in terms of the humanity, that's where that's where our shortcomings as humans are that if you enter the sphere of money, uh, we very quickly think about only one thing and become very one-sided. So there's actually a great story on money in the book um, because we're heading to the environment where we'll have not just one money, but multiple currencies. Uh, we already have to a point, you know, you have American Express points and Nectar points and Tesco points and Libra from Facebook and Everybody's got a little currency and eventually we'll have coins, of course. Bitcoins, of course, Ripple, Solana. Uh, and we will have little bots that will just negotiate the exchange of the day and help us to buy things in the right currency of the time. And I think this is the direction we are heading. So the our life is becoming even more monetized as the digital has moved in. You know, while we were using cash and banknotes. It was still quite limited. It was still, you know, a lot of the system is solely about money, but having them in a physical format was still keeping at bay the relentless financialization. Now we have digital money because we kind of almost entirely migrated to digital cash in developed societies is on the on the out, which is a separate issue, but we go to right. later. But it just opened the doors into enormous amount of financialization that people couldn't even consider before. We have opportunity to fractionalize payments and can now charge less than a P, for example. We can you know, segment money to tiny and tinier bit. And people do. But it means that we are being wrapped more and more into a system which is solely about financial exchange as opposed to human or emotional exchange. So that's the bit which we're trying to find because ultimately humans don't thrive in financialization. So I think free market, yes, but keeping money at bay and leaving ourselves space to breathe, live, meditate and be happy is very important. Well, so in, in the book, we're going to get to your piece uh, momentarily, but in the book, you have this notion of how digitalization of currency also is a way to surveil and attribute value to people and, and maybe even change the value of money according to 
the type of profile you are. So if you need an abortion, are you allowed to? Can you spend money, the money that you're allowed to on, on such a service, depending on the morals? Which brings up for me the other question, which is, to what extent did you as a team of 22, well, there are 22 ideas. There's some people who did a few ex uh, together, same, you know, or same authors, but to what extent did you confer on your, let's say, political or philosophical approach to your mixtopias uh, in terms of what you all believe otherwise? Uh, if you know, I think we confirmed actually very little because uh, the the process of writing was interesting. It was a combination of cyber salon approach, which is working with the experts and experts briefing the writers, uh, and then writing, having a little bit of feedback as the as the pieces form. Uh, and the the experts were quite versed in that because a lot of experts do that as part of the research. So we work with some amazing people, Rachel Armstrong, who is a professor of living architecture, uh, who has always been very strong on participatory futures and bringing experts to share the ideas as they form and get feedback. You know, much more embedded research as opposed to just locking yourself up in the ivory tower. I'm sure the theoretical physicists do that, but nobody else needs to be doing that. So Rachel was very helpful with that. And also a uh, couple of writers which we took as experts. So Yun Oi, who's Chinese and had a very interesting view on Chinese surveillance versus Western surveillance. And I wouldn't say it was black and white. So she raised um, issues, for example, concierge that I'm familiar with from Poland. So each of the block of flats has a concierge. And that concierge knows absolutely everything. That is the job. All the rumors, the gossip, everything. And but the, we had the same in we had the same in Paris, for example. Right, of course, but the upside, as you uh, noted, is that if somebody was ill, if somebody was not well, or if one of the kids were going slightly wild, she would know and she would help. She would put a little support system in place to rescue the situation before it escalated. And I remember exactly that because you know we used to smoke in Poland behind the dustbin then. And, you know, it could have gone further, but it didn't because somebody kept an eye. The parents didn't know, the parents were at work, nobody cared, you know, people never, nobody really but, worried. But about the it. concierge would then hold something over you because yeah. she knew that you that's, were smoking. That's exactly right. So there was very complex exchange being formed. And Yun was saying that in, in China, you just have to have it because life is so incredibly complex without somebody like that. They couldn't manage it. So you can't, so she's bringing the point of convenience, you know, humans, always trade surveillance for convenience. And and these are the topics that we were moving over with the experts. So one of the great stories in the book is by Britta Schulte. And it's, I wouldn't say it's from experience, but she observed something that one of the older ladies in her apartment, in her block apartment, was uh, organizing quite wild parties for, you know, 75 plus. And uh, yet she was wearing a bracelet because her family were concerned about her whereabouts for her health. And then the stories about you know, how it pans out when grandma is having wild parties end while the family is getting very strange messages about her whereabouts. And you know, how do you resolve it? Does grandma have the you know freedom to do a heart a heart palpitation or or a little bit of heart fun? I think it was a lot more on the fun side. <laughs> But obviously, the convenience of knowing for her health and her whereabouts 
was kind of you know in conflict with with trying to support her you know living her life to the full if she chooses to do it and i think this is the great debate because what rachel noticed you know we're very much like a frog you know slowly slowly the convenience of surveillance embraces us and sometimes it's just so hard to choose not accepting cookies not accepting that that kind of warp of oh everybody knows what i like and they always present me only what i like so that was picked up really nicely in the story accept all cookies where you move in the new neighborhood and then somebody shows up with a tray of cookies and they know that you are gluten-free so obviously the cookies are gluten-free but they also know a lot more but it's kind of convenient that they know what you like and your life just develops and it's really nicely picked up as the guy from initial oh i don't like that oh i'm not really comfortable with people knowing what I like. Oh, I should be doing something about it. To a few months later, he's the one who is welcoming the neighbor next door with gluten-free cookies because it just works. <laughs> so, you know, the insidiousness of surveillance and giving us these easy choices as we slide into that kind of, you know, oblivion of everybody just works around it. But as I started at the beginning, it's also giving us choices from our past. It's really stopping us from selecting new things it's stopping us from looking at new ideas because it's easier not to imagine how fast we could solve the world's biggest problems if more SaaS startups would gain traction sooner welcome to the tech entrepreneur on a mission podcast this podcast is dedicated to sharing experiences from b2b SaaS ceos who are going above and beyond to deliver change that is noticed you will hear their secrets and learn what is required to build a SaaS business that the world starts talking about and keeps talking about and how to overcome the roadblocks to do so. Well, I was just thinking about how there are so many peanut allergies now because we're no longer eating peanuts or being exposed to peanuts, which by itself is provoking more peanut allergies, some research points oh, yeah, out. Totally. And you could see that in... Um... After COVID, how many kids got ill because they spent two years at home not being exposed to other uh, germs? And I think it's the same with food. We had we actually had a really great story in the books, Bits and, uh, Bits and Bacon, about that uh, surveillance of food by the nanny state where, you know, at some point somebody concluded that eating meat is really bad for you. So your digital money is controlled and doesn't allow you to buy these things in the same way, like in the heartbeat story, your digital money stops you from, from having abortion because it can be programmed. The money is becoming programmable. I kind of seen it already you know, in the pub. Somebody was wearing this Fitbit and um, uh, we were drinking pints, probably more than we should have, probably way too many. And at some point, you know, the, the Fitbit is sending a message and some say, oh, no, I can't drink anymore because the sugar is a sugar monitoring device as well. And the glucose was spiking. You know, he was a perfectly healthy guy, but it's people are erring on this optimizing to perfection where your body should be, which probably is a good idea, but it's just so strange being part of it. So we, we, we got to the point where we are so digitalized that instead of being anxious about real things we're becoming anxious about unreal things you know somebody was telling me last night actually that there is only four percent of population that is genuinely gluten um intolerant yet when you look at the gluten-free diet like half of the population seems to be on it so you know we we kind of are 
over-informed and under-informed. And we haven't quite negotiated that passage from knowing so much about our bodies through the digitalization and responding to artificial intelligence advice to do only what is safe and only what we have done before. So that's the limitation that we need to hack against. Yeah, it reminds me of a story when I was playing sports in England. Uh, sometimes I would run a lot. Of course, I was always running anyway. <laughs> and I had pain sometimes in my legs and and you just got over it. Stiff upper lip, deal with it. I got to America and I went to a, a, a school in America for a year and I was doing the same sports and I, the same injuries came and said, oh, you have shin splints. So I know I just have some pain in my legs. No, 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 it's called shin splints. You need to treat it. I'm like, well, no, I just need to deal with it. Just that's how it goes. So the idea of naming it was um, gave it more presence, more substance. In, in just want to go back. If a, um, the idea of convenience, I, it feels for me like th that's a a convenient word. Convenience. One could attribute two other ideas to it. One is efficiency, and the other is laziness. Which one do you think is more appropriate to the way the human is? Uh, well, human body is designed to do as little as possible. You know, given our free choice, we would just stay in bed with our headsets on and live our life, you know, under the duvet. Remember there was a movie, Surrogates, I think, which is exactly that, where people spent all the time in bed with, with VR headsets, having this incredibly interesting life as avatars while just getting fat and sick. So, you know, like when you look at uh, our future, that it's not an impossible direction, because it's always nice and easy and warm under duvet, and why bother? So as technology develops to wrap us around our convenient desires, it, it delivers that. You have plenty of opportunities to do it to a degree today. I actually do work quite a lot on VR at the moment, and uh, we do it differently. We do it for physical activity, you know, very much with body somewhere and doing things uh, physical, but the temptation is there. So, you know, the way we construct it drives us to it's laziness is a, it's a statement. It's more like conserving energy because where we come from, there was never enough food. There was never enough resource. We had to conserve energy. So we're not, unless we hyper, you know, types, which, you know, obviously many of us are, but unless you are skewed that way, the, the human base default behavior is to conserve energy. So if technology allows you some choices to do less and to go with convenience, that's just because that's the way we, we construct it and we have to fight against it, be aware of it. Well, I think that's probably the motivation of your book, 20 Ideas, to sort of, through the use of near-term fiction, stimulate people to get the idea, the energy to fight against this overwhelming tsunami of oh-so-easy convenience? Uh, yes, because I think at the moment humans are losing. You know, we have such enormous progress in science of addiction. Uh, you know, the whole departments in Stanford University, in, well, not looking far, UCL, about this behavioral nudging and they're all dressed up as nudging for good. But trust me, people who graduate from this place, 99% of them will be nudging for just getting more money out of you in any way they can. So it's really quite heartbreaking because, you know, by background, I'm a UX designer and I studied with, you know, beautiful, enormously humanistic 
driven professors. It was about making UX better for nuclear power dashboard design or making information serve people better. And somehow along the way, half of the scientists decided, oh, this could be really fun to teach people how to manipulate people through that. And all this enormous science that you know has been developed over years and years is now being deployed and taught at universities how to manipulate all of us and you know we have no chance like honestly we have no chance the the degree of sophistication that goes into design of games to keep the kids in them it's insane i mean this is beyond noble price level so we as humans I just sit there and pray that they will all that the business models will run its course and they will all do something else because we have no chance so that was the cry for help in the book and actually interestingly we came up with with fiction, because you can't tell people that, you know, this is not something that just goes into the brain, you know, you can explain to people, show them diagrams, show it to the nothing, it just goes nowhere. So fiction is probably our last cry for help. Um, and people try. So probably one, one good example that I really like, there's a very good story in the book by Jess, Jess Rowell from Haiti, uh, from uh, Hawaii, American writer, a very, very good technical developer who knows how far we can go when we build. And he wrote this quite quite disturbing story about uh, the Valence program, where um, the government decides to use social media towards its best out and create these fictionary um, characters that people can hate and then use that to get communities to bond together against that hated character. And then the character gets expelled from the community and everybody breathes sign of relief and carries on safely a little bit further. And, you know, this is basically the story of the, you know, snake oil salesman from the Wild Wells or the witches earlier on. You know, we do that. But the, the idea that somebody would do that as a way of positively managing communities was quite shocking. But it also picks up on why this is a bad idea, because to create this bogeyman, this sort of frightening individuals, mythical individuals, they're composed of traits that we naturally are suspicious of or dislike. So traits of migrants, traits of women, traits of minorities. So it doesn't really solve the problem. It just pushes the problem a little bit further to the future. But it's written, in, I mean, I, I had spine on my back when I was reading that. And that I will remember. And I think that people will remember. And next time they have, you know, some campaign by the right-wingers online trying to get us to hate somebody, maybe they will think a little bit longer. Just awareness how that easily can be done. If I could add, uh, for the left-wingers, for the right equally, um, it, it, I mean, at a geopolitical level, that's often the idea, you know, let's oh, we'll make the enemy over there and then we can ramp up our defenses and and make the narrative about our foreign affairs and forget some of the issues in the domestic affairs. That is certainly playing out. I wanted to um, just chat and all the same about the summoned. So your piece, which, as you said, was, as I understand, it was the first piece of fiction you wrote. So the way I I looked at it was you were having a go at exclusivity and elitism and break and how to break through. That's how I read it. Yes, it was a bit of a rant because I'm also a gamer and what uh, we were looking at money and the proliferation of currencies. And the one thing which always irritates me in games is that you make an effort, you learn the rules and you're beginning to win and you gain all this currency. 
And then halfway through, they launch another currency within the same game, and you have to start again. Or you play a very similar game, which has got yet the third currency. So my kind of initial bouncing point was like, honestly, it's just ripping kids off. And if we could make it interoperable, that would really change the way we use time. Because, you know, when you see how much time gamers put into games, it's hundreds of hours. It's like at least 40 hours per game. If we could use that as an asset and build on it, even as a collaboration with a bigger group, you are opening very interesting entrepreneurial direction. So that was kind of I started with. But then, you know, at the same time, you know, I've got kids in American universities and I was just going through the process of application. And about how insane is that system where you have legacy baked in and actually is baked in. So the privilege carries on, you know, the same families that arrived whenever on the first boat are still there because it's baked in the system. And even my reasonably democratically minded American friends don't think anything of it. It just is. So, you know, so I kind of talk about it with this metaphor of the tall men who arrived from the East and take over, while in fact the real heroes are the local tall men who have worked within the existing communities long enough before anybody else arrives. So, you know, it's not a go in any particular boats, people, of course, but but it was a shocking to me in the American system how acceptable it's that it's not marriage-based, but it's privilege-based and how not discussed it is. I met an interesting woman who wrote a book called EduPunk, um, Anya, who a while ago was taking quite a strong stance against the recruitment pr practices of universities in U.S., and, you know, it attracted fair amount of um, commentary, but nothing has changed. <laughs> nothing has changed. You know, it's still exactly the same. So I think sooner or later, Americans will have to tackle it. Um, but it's it's basically all about how we resolve the privilege of previous generation passing on while not lose, losing the incentive for people to work. Because obviously, if you stop people from passing on the privilege, why would we be working? So I don't have any answers, but I thought it would be interesting to raise that in the story. Plus, you know, I like myths. I like fables. So it's ended up to be a bit more of a fable. Well, it was very enjoyable to read. And uh, it made me, well, so at one level, just to sort of debate somehow the story, I feel like there's a, a humanities element to this idea of, a legacy at some level where you look at country by country, how many, how often there are families that dominate the, the, you know, the Politburo or the, the government or a company. And, and it seems to be something that's fairly spread out over the world. And then the other second anecdote or thought is that in France, I don't have the exact fact, but there was a study that said that's and maybe I read it in France, it might have been more international, but that some vast proportion, the majority of all CEOs tend to be tall and men and, and typically tall, thin and men. And so that, that fell, fell into the tall men, uh, the story that you have. And yet yeah. I feel like it feels you know, like it's actually another form of exclusivity. Yes, absolutely. And, you know, it's actually, it goes further. You know, I'm I'm quite tall and I was very young when I had my first CEO position. I think I was barely 30. So, you know, I remember putting these high heels on. It helped. So, you know, 
I had to work with fantastic people, but because I was quite young in the field where A, there were no women because it was a technical job. And also, yeah, well, just you just came as a complete nobody. And having that advantage of height absolutely helped. And it still does. It's insane how strange humans are calibrated to attribute something in terms of leadership to height. But, you know, obviously there's plenty of amazing leaders who haven't got that advantage. But it is a fraction high if you are. I've got a lovely friend who is tiny and she's an amazing leader. But, oh, my God, she's got to make twice as much noise than I do. <laughs> so, so. Right. I think there is something inbuilt in the system, but you know, it's one of these things we have to fight against. Be aware of that it's there. Please be aware. I mean, otherwise you might also think about the Napoleonic idea, chip on my shoulder, because I'm smaller, I got to do more, or because I'm a woman, I have to do more to compete. And that motivating factor within to fight against the system is also a strong driver. Yeah, I'm really sure that half of it was my reasonably successful relationship with Philip Green. You know, he was on my board for quite a long time. We worked quite closely together. And, you know, he was a force of nature, but I was taller than him. And it's it put our relationship to the fraction better footing. I mean, obviously, I left when I realized what was going on. But but it was quite interesting that uh, you, you can work on it. But in the idea, it was really fascinating when we moved to Zoom. I think we we observed that that uh, suddenly that uh, whole we're all the same size. Yeah, and when we started coming back, because obviously I met a lot of people from my companies during COVID. I had no idea if they're tall, high, whatever. Right. Suddenly, when we came back to the offices, it's like ah, right, there might be like a half a meter difference somewhere. By then, it didn't matter. But would they have been in the position of leadership if it wasn't COVID? I honestly don't know. So it's a it's in in some way virtuality is much more equal, much more equal, and it's very exciting. You know, when you see people in VR, I hosted a great conference recently when Meta Mark Zuckerberg was launching his new um, developments, and I hosted it in VR. So we were all avatars. In a in a room with um, with an audience sitting on a it was a bit ridiculous because we were sitting on audience seats we didn't need to we could just you know mill around because you're an avatar you don't need to be sitting like you know there is no gravity in virtuality which is good because we won't need brass in virtual world which I'm quite excited about it you uh, but you know the whole experience of being in this virtual space and you can just pick your avatar as you want it tall, small, average, you know, it's great. It's it's really democratic. So in some way, that movement to VR will hugely empower people. And for better, for worse, we are making that transition. And that bit is a good bit. Well, we'll see how humanity plays with the rest. For uh, So i uh, encouraging everybody to go and check out 20 Ideas About the Future and, of course, to read your particular piece on the summon, but the, the other was are phenomenal stories as well. I want to move in just for the last part, if I talk about the the future of retail. So the near future of retail, 2023, 2024, it seems, and I, I was, before thinking about the question, I, I, I wanted to come up with a list of which is the biggest challenge for, for retail? And it just got longer and longer. Is it a macroeconomics problem, a microeconomics problem? Is it customer deafness? Is it labor shortage? Is it a poor user experience customer journey? 
consumer fatigue, we don't want to buy anymore, climate change, political upheavals, inflation, confusion on how to do marketing, e-commerce, plus, you know, multi-channel. Oh my gosh, how does one drive successfully retail uh, into this near future? Uh, retail has always been about solving problems. That's what retail does. So, you know, all that long list you just gave me, we just solve it one by one. You know, retail will always exist. There will always be something people want to buy. But I think the big shifts at the moment are around the two topics you mentioned. So the big shift is inflation. Um, you know, I go back in retail quite a while. So I traded my first uh, entrepreneurial stores when the inflation was about 8%. So this is... And this was coming down from 15%. So this is not a new, this is not my first rodeo. So I kind of mm. find I have my way around it. You know, you just have to micromanage, increase the prices, cut the cost, increase the prices, cut the cost. It's a very much little and often, um, and you buy slightly differently. But, you know, there are people who remember, we just teach the younger generation will be fine. That That is solvable. However, the labor shortage, which we obviously increased massively by Brexit, but I think it was coming anyway because there was a dip, demographic dip. Uh, that's, that's a really tricky one because, you know, the retention of staff is impossible. We are paying about 20% more in wages at the moment, and we still can't retain people because they know if they move, they get 20% more somewhere else. So working with companies where, which do not retain knowledge because that knowledge just migrates after the door the second you taught them. Uh, that's a new one. And that does not feel, it's very unproductive because you take you spend a lot of time training and then you never really settle. So that's a huge challenge. And I haven't seen it quite as bad as now. I'm hoping that they will sort out some kind of soft, softization of Brexit because with uh, a number of industries, we are really... I think it's a luxury we can't afford anymore. You know, Brexit was a kind of like right-wing luxury. I honestly don't think we can afford it. But, you know, it's the same in other countries for different reasons. America has a massive labor shortage at the moment. You know, when you read this city announcements, oh, my God, you know, Meta has let 10,000 people go. No, they all called them through the back door, giving them jobs in different departments because they can't afford to let people go. It's just for show for the, you know, Nasdaq to look like you are macho leader who can react quickly, but they cannot afford to lose anybody at the moment. So, you know, half of people that Musk let, let go, they immediately got a call to join different departments. It's all bullshit. And the same in Europe, you know, so we're basically going for a demographic dip that we're struggling with. And the third challenge for us is the role of a retailer. You know, the traditional role of a retailer was to sell physical things. And with Web2, we moved to selling those physical things through digital environment, but in the majority, there were still physical objects, you know, like books, like items, like clothing. But now we're entering Web3, and I can see a lot more digital product being sold on digital platforms. Um, and that's a bit trickier because the obviously opportunity for fraud is higher. You could be you know, developing a nice collection on NFT and then some of the empties your wallet and that's the last you've seen on it. It's all kind of quite, still quite wild west out there. Yet people want it. People are thinking, hmm, you know, I've got a cupboard full of stuff anyway. Do, how do I express my identity? How I do what I like to do, but without contributing to yet more landfill, to yet more pollution? You know, people are beginning to sort of get the hang of it. So, 
I really see people getting interested in digital fashion when you buy amazing designs for your avatar and mm. you express your identity, your artistic taste, your styling in that way without, you know, doing any more environmental damage. I mean, trust me, I've been in fashion so many years. I've contributed to a few landfills in my life. I really don't want to do it anymore if I can. So we're working very, very hard on a digitization of those expressions of personality, but also with the tail end of the physical, the retailer will have to be responsible for disposing of it in an eco-friendly way. So, you know, there's a legislation coming. Um, we had a big debate in House of Commons two weeks ago, and it's coming. It's probably not a couple of years before it settles, but basically forcing the manufacturer and the retailer to be responsible for end of life of those products. So we will be able to send it back get 10% off from the next purchase, but the retailer will have to dispose of it ecologically. It's much easier to do on a large scale. You know, the idea that you as a consumer can ever dispose of anything sensibly, it's just ridiculous. It's not possible because this it's a scale. Recycling is a scale and you can do a lot of good things if you have scale. So it really all has to come back to wherever it came from. And then we deal with it on the retailer and the brand side at scale. And that's already panning out, but it has to be legislation, legislated because obviously, you know, business being business, they won't do anything unless they absolutely have to. But if they have to, there are solutions. And also if they have to, then they will put more energy in designing the bloody thing in the first place in the echo way that it's either extending circularity of the item or being disposable easily. You know, who's really good doing great job on it is the Swedish, the Scandinavians, as always leading the way in, you know, closing the law, being intelligent about it, and don't put responsibility solely on the consumer because the consumer can do very little. It, it's a bigger, it's a bigger issue. So, you know, the role of a retailer from flogging things, it's now more into managing the service of you owning something for a bit and then you know, we take care of what happens of it after. So it's a very, very different role. But, you know, the role of retailer is always changing. And and that's, it attracts people who like problems. We have plenty of problems. So we, I'm fairly confident we will solve those bits. Lots to unpack in that, Eva. It, um, thinking of a tweet that I saw yesterday about how much would you be prepared to spend on digital fashion? So I'm now rethinking you've opened my mind to that. And then as far as this labor shortage, I, I absolutely believe that it's not a Brexit-related thing. I think it's uh, more related to people's fulfillment feeling and what are they doing spending 40 hours wherever they're working and, and do they feel fulfilled at what they're doing? And at the same time, I, I thought as you spoke about the the way people spend 10, 20% more, you if you hire over here, it's very much like the financial markets, though the financial services type of attitude, but they have distinctly higher margins, whereas retailers do not generally. And then the last comment I had is the idea of uh, the that we've gone away from consuming so many goods and having cupboards filled with all these items, which we can't take with us to our grave. We've also discovered that life is about experience more than the toys and clothing. And yet there's still a need for identity and the power of brands. And so maybe <laughs> there's a lot to, to throw back at you, but look at, for me, the role of a retailer to help with 
our sense of fulfillment and identity. Yes, absolutely. You know, we are collective animals. We signal, everything we do is signaling. We don't think about it. It comes from some, you know, deep part of the brain, the old brain. But it's all about survival. And survival was about, you know, doing the right things with the right group or you'll be eaten. So we are still very much doing the right things with the right group if we were Gucci or Prada or Patagonia or Stussy. You know, these are all very, very meaningful choices. Or if we were vintage, you know, my daughter buys nothing. It's all vintage, but it's the right type of vintage. You know? Like so, my daughter. So this, so I'm very proud of her that she does it. But, you know, it's quite, it's still very much expression of personality. What type from which shop, you know, which vintage is more kosher than other. You know, humans will always signal. And we just have to support it in a way that is as eco-friendly as, as possible because the clock is ticking on us and you know we are droning in rubbish we are droning in waste when you travel through particularly for places that don't hide it like you know partially eastern europe but also there are parts of uk that don't hide it it's like it's insane what's going on with the landfill at the moment so you know we're very conscious that we have to solve it and i think we have the right people we certainly have the right design culture you know the design schools have done very very good job in a Royal Academy of uh, Art and, you know, basically most of design schools in UK, in US, in Germany, in Holland, in Scandinavia, they're really teaching that grant up now. You know, when you look at the education of how product design is done now, they are really ramming it into the kids that, you know, think about the effect of it at the end of the line, what happens to it. The one battle which is particularly strong for me is the trainers. You know, it's like one step forward, 20 steps back. You know, we are all addicted to trainers. Everybody I know has got 20 pairs, this for that, and this for walking, this for running, God knows what, and half of it just for show. You know, trainers are the worst culprits. There's about 20 types of plastic in each trainer, and it is possible to recycle. So whatever people try to greenwash it, you know, Nike once in a while releases some greeny trainers, complete nonsense. It is the worst thing for the environment. Yet that information hasn't sort of sunk through. There were books and books about it, but obviously, you know, again, it preaches to the converted, you know, people just ignore it. And brands have done great job selling the idea of looking sporty. They've done nothing on what is the end of life of this product. And the end of life is not really good because of the complexity of the product. So that's a battle which is still looming large. And with very, very little ownership of those brands who are the main culprits. I would say the fast fashion companies in other categories are doing a little bit better job. So that would be interesting because that hits right in the core of the identity. You know, people die for these trainers. They get up two in the morning for the drop online of the new collection. And you know, they are really tied up very tightly with our identities. So this is going to be interesting because this is asking a big question. Um, so I think that will that's in front of us. But you know, I am an optimist despite you know seeing all the things going wrong because I do a lot of Wikipedia, and at the end of the day, you see that Wikipedia and gathering of the right facts and information eventually gets picked up by NGOs, eventually gets picked up by charities, then eventually that gets picked up by the media, and eventually people understand mm -hmm. a little bit more. So you know, take gifts, takes away, but on the whole, we are ahead. Eva, on that wonderfully positive note, I want to thank you. That was just a stirring conversation. You, you're you're really very inspiring. Um, and I would like to ask you how anyone can 
what's the best way to follow your readings? Um, where, where would you like people to go? And of course, how to get your latest book, 22 Ideas About the Future. Uh, it's best to go on Amazon or Waterstones, uh, and you can pick it pick up from a fair amount of independent shops. Uh, and I'm on cybersalon.org and also avapasco.com for more future of work um, conversations. So you can find me on any of those channels. Where you blog frequently. Thank you very much. It was a wonderful uh, chat, Eva. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thanks for having listened to this episode of the Minter Dialogue podcast. If you like the show and would like to support me, please consider a donation on patreon.com forward slash Minterdial. You can also subscribe on your favorite podcast service. And as ever, rating and reviews are the real currency for podcasts. You'll find the show notes with over 2,000 and more blog posts on Minterdial.com. Check out my documentary film and four books including my last one, You Lead, How Being Yourself Makes You a Better Leader. And to finish, here's a song I wrote with Stephanie Singer, A Convinced Man.
Cindy Burnett, and each week I interview at least two traditionally published authors on my podcast, Thoughts from a Page. We talk spoiler-free about their books, so you can listen whether you have read the book or not. And then we delve into things that you most likely won't hear about anywhere else. The importance of the cover design, why they included various aspects of the story, personal details about both the books and the author's lives, and so much more. You can find the podcast on every major platform and learn more about it on my website, thoughtsfromapage.com. Thanks so much for checking it out.